ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. 3D printing keeps popping up in the news, from home manufacture of guns and weapons in the United States to artworks. There's scope in engineering, manufacturing, architecture and design, and it could be used in healthcare. The ABC Science Unit's Carl Smith learned more when he toured the Hurston Biofabrication Institute, which is a new addition to the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. 3D printing is a technology that is not very well suited at making a lot of things that are exactly the same. But what it does very well is print and make one-off. So what that is useful for is to make devices that will fit you and only you. And having the ability to manufacture that at the point of care means that we're able to deliver and to evaluate those personalized patient match or custom-made medical devices right here on site. Yep, 3D printing in a hospital setting to make healthcare more personalised. How exactly is that meant to work? I met with some of the scientists and surgeons working together at the Hurston Biofabrication Institute in Brisbane to find out. My name is Mathilde Sell. I'm the general manager of the Hurston Biofabrication Institute. What is a biofabrication institute? (laughs) So the Institute aims at translating 3D technology to the practice of medicine. So I'm talking about technologies like 3D printing that we employ in health services and personalised medical devices for our patients. It certainly makes for a good pitch, but I wanted to visit today to see a few tangible examples of this. So tag along to meet those working on better and more realistic models for doctors to practice on, plus devices designed specifically for patients to make for more effective and comfier treatments, and implantable scaffolds to assist with recovery and repair. Then finally, better artificial skin to help burns patients. While 3D printing might be the most attention-grabbing and perhaps zeitgeisty element of what they do here, The Institute also explores 3D scanning techniques and virtual modelling. And Mathilde Dessel says each of these has the potential to help create more personalised care. Sometimes a small, medium and large system just does not work because the anatomy just looks different because of a trauma, because of a birth defect, because of ageing, because of cancer. And in those cases, you need to access solutions that are very much match to the patient's specific anatomy. And from the outside, it is just a fairly nondescript looking (laughs) hospital building. Maybe just describe what we can see as we head into the lab. So we have display cabinets, anatomical model here of an aorta. And in the middle of the aorta, the bulge that you can see is an aneurysm. And we can 3D print in materials that you see that are flexible. Those materials can replicate the mechanical properties of human tissue, like what your aorta feels like. She tells me these kinds of bespoke models are already used by surgeons to help design the best care for patients, especially if they need a difficult procedure, like inserting a custom stent into an aorta. In some cases, you know, they're quite complex, hard to visualise on a screen with medical imaging. And also, you can't interact with them very well. 
But what we can do is we can model it. We can 3D print it. So we know if the stent is going to work or if the design needs adjusting. We know how difficult accessing the area is going to be as well. In doing this, you may be saving yourself six hours in a theatre. Saving hours of operating time lost through trial and error mid-surgery could make a big difference for patients and for surgeons. Past these displays, we enter one of the Institute's laboratories. On a long bench in front of us, there's an array of tiny cubes of 3D printed materials. So the various materials that we are looking at serve obviously a variety of purposes. And some of these um, are quite hard, like this yeah, drawer here. This not very expensive to make, a few dollars for the kidney model that I'm holding right now. But as we move further down the bench, some of the 3D printed materials have much more unusual textures and much finer details. So this kind of material comes off our digital anatomy printer. Each of these little cubes is actually printed in a material that will replicate a different part of the human anatomy in terms of how it feels. And you're welcome to poke and probe. The one that you're poking now replicates what a vessel wall feels like. If you poke one of these, this is what a solid tumour feels like. If we poke one of these, this is what the human liver feels like. Although my mind immediately jumps to how these might replicate or replace parts of the human body, she says the more immediate use for these kinds of materials is training surgeons. Because we want to make those experiences as lifelike as we possibly can. So not only does it have to look right, it has to feel right. How do you train someone to perform brain surgery? The way it's done typically is on a cadaver. But the caveat with this is that you're not getting a lot of variety in terms of pathologies. With 3D modeling and 3D printing, we can simulate any pathology. And that can be used to train junior surgeons, but also maybe to train surgeons who might not have access locally to neurosurgery training. She says a lifelike, exact model of a patient's unique injury can also be used in planning personalised procedures. Imagine you fell off your bike and you fractured your jaw. That's pretty bad. It's in a few pieces. So our maxillofacial surgeon will be, first of all, sending you to get some medical imaging done so he can visualise what's happening. And we take those images and we're able to reconstruct that in three dimensions. We create a virtual model of your fractured jaw. And then we can 3D print your jaw right here on site. And they can plan exactly how they're going to reconstruct your jaw. So the, the appeal for that is to reduce the risk to the patient. It's also to generate cost efficiencies. And thirdly, it's to transform people's experiences at the point of care. To hear more about this kind of work, the head of the hospital's maxillofacial unit, just on the other side of this building, meets me with a handful of 3D printed models. So my name's Martin Batstone. Maybe it's a bit of a baseline. What's the traditional way of working with the patient? Yeah, sure. So I suppose this example that we're talking about is a reconstruction of someone's mandible or their lower jaw after either trauma or most commonly resection due to a malignant or benign tumour. As he's speaking, he holds up a model, a more traditional lower jaw reconstruction. A straight piece of bone has been cut into smaller chunks and roughly slotted together into a curved jawbone shape. And we're looking at 
people's mandibles who've all been reconstructed with the fibula, which is a common donor site, it's part of your lower leg. We basically use carpentry to try and adjust the shape of them so they look as close as possible to your mandible, and that often involves cutting them into smaller pieces, removing small wedges. The pieces of leg bone are held in place by a metal frame, and he tells me they eventually fuse together as the body heals. Dr Batstone tells me this process would usually be done during the surgery. In the operating theatre, break the bone to make it the right shape and close up. So that worked, but you can imagine that it was time-consuming and not necessarily accurate, and all the planning was done intraoperatively. Probably means more time in an operating theatre for you and for patients, right? That's correct, and these operations are quite long, ranging between sort of 6 and 12 hours. So I guess what's changed, what's happened over the years, we've used what we would call virtual surgical planning, modelling and patient-specific implants. So virtual surgical planning means you import typically imaging data, so a CT scan, and then you virtually perform the operation. So you draw lines, virtually cut out the tumour, decide which graft in conjunction with the patient you're going to harvest to reconstruct the jaw, and then a lot of the implants that are used to hold that graft in position can be manufactured prior to the surgery itself. So it fits and it's all made and the operative time is diminished. So he says already, just with the ability to 3D scan and model virtually, the experience will often be better for patients and for surgeons. Certainly more accurate. Probably time-saving is the biggest factor. And the other thing I think it does is overcome experience issues on behalf of the surgeon. You can get a very good result very quickly. It's the first step we've got in front of us here, but I believe... There's added layers of new technology and new approaches that we've got in front of us as well. Yeah, so I suppose that's still a part of your body that gets transplanted to another part of your body. And whenever you do that, there's what we would call donor site morbidity or a price to pay for that graft harvest. So ideally, you would grow that in a test tube or, or pull it off a shelf and it's still part of you, gives you the same result without the cut on your leg. But that's lots of steps of science between here and there. And the first step that we're trying to take is to make your leg bone look more like a jawbone. And he says 3D printing approaches being trialled here are helping to make this first step possible. So we're using a bioresorbable polyester. The technical term for it is polycaprolactone, but it can be 3D printed. It's dissolved by your own body over about two year period. And if it's charged or seeded with cells and bits of bone, it will grow bone into it and thus the shape becomes much more like the shape of your jaw and we can do that in a customised or patient-specific fashion. This would be a very neat trick. Instead of just sticking rough little chunks of cut-up leg bone together, he says this process would involve building a bespoke printed scaffold around those chunks or even just around the patient's cells. And this encourages the bone to grow and fill in the gaps in the scaffold. That's exactly right. And we can even go so far as to plan within the scaffold where we're likely to put dental implants to allow them to get their teeth back as well. Sounds like pretty science fiction stuff, but we've got the models in front of us. So is this being used very often in patients now? The implantable scaffolds, these ones that I'm showing you now are actually part of a proposed clinical trial and that's already obtained ethics approval. So that means the ethics review committee say it's safe to perform. It's already been used in other areas of the body. So for breast implantation, for example, you may have heard of, they're trying to reconstruct breasts for women who've lost them through breast cancer surgery. Polycaprolactone itself is a very safe bioresorbable material. It's been implanted thousands of times. The breast reconstruction project he's talking about there was a world first. 
In 2022, the Hurston Biofabrication Institute and collaborators were able to use this technology to reconstruct a woman's breasts. That woman's silicon breast implants were reportedly causing side effects, so the team replaced them with a bioresorbable 3D printed scaffold, seeded with her own fat cells. She was their first clinical trial patient, and this trial has laid the foundations for other surgeons and scientists working here to apply this technology in other forms of surgery. As a surgeon, it's been incredibly exciting. I kind of felt like we were left behind for many years as IT power got better and better. And you could see my colleagues in radiology or radiation and oncology all benefiting from that. Nothing was happening for us. And virtual surgical planning and 3D printing has really changed that. And I'm a technophobe. So if I like something, it definitely works. (laughs) And what needs to happen really is the, the cost of delivering it needs to come down. And I think the Biofabrication Institute is a good way for that to occur because you can control some of those costs in-house. As 3D printing technology improves, Dr Martin Batstone says it will open up even more pathways for surgeons. For example, some 3D printers are able to use metal instead of plastic. So he says one possibility could be 3D printed metal implants that could be absorbed into the body after tissues have healed around them. So one example is the metal plate that we put in to hold the segments of bone in the right position. Currently, that's made out of titanium, which is a very strong biocompatible material, but it is not meant to be there. No one was born with metal in their body. And ultimately, a reasonable proportion of them cause problems. So I would like those metals to go away. By that, I mean be dissolved, be part of your body or excreted. So that's effectively a resorbable metal. Or an alternative would be a polymer that's strong enough to do the same thing as a metal. Dr. Martin Batstone heads back to work at the maxillofacial unit in the main wings of the hospital building. And then Mathilde Dessel shows me a few of the 3D printers they have scattered throughout the research institute. So 3D printing in general works by constructing an object in a layer-by-layer fashion. There are different technologies I would like to show you today. So the first one is my little favourite. I'm going to open it. So what are we seeing in here? So what we're looking at now is the guts of a nylon 3D printer. We've got a bit of a rolling pin over here on the side. It's going to layer the powder on our print bed that sits right here in the middle. On top of the print bed, we have a laser that comes out of here. That laser is going to heat the powder and sinter it, melt, solidify it. And our object is built like that in a bottom-up, layer-by-layer fashion. As we walk through and look at some of the other giant machines, she tells me this technology isn't only useful for printing things that will go inside our bodies. A good example is what Tanya and her team are doing, which is 3D printing of radiation therapy aids. So these devices are directly used to be a bit more accurate as radiation therapy is delivered to their patients. I'm Tanya Cairn. I'm the Director of Medical Physics for Cancer Care Services at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital. What do you do? 
I guess the, the broader question is, what is a physicist doing in a radiation oncology department? And at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, we have quite a few physicists. Our role in this department and all radiation oncology departments in Australia is to make sure that when one unit of radiation is delivered to a patient, so one gray of radiation is delivered to a patient on any of our treatment machines, that that one gray that we're delivering is the same at the Royal Brisbane as it is in every other hospital in Australia, as it is in Alpanza, as it is at BI. In, Paris. in radiation therapy, a high dose of radiation is blasted at a tumour with the goal of killing it. Dr Can works to make this process as precise as possible. That's the most basic aspect. But in order to make sure that that one gray of radiation is delivered correctly inside a human being, that means that the patient needs to be imaged correctly and then that those dose distributions, which can be very, very complicated these days, can be delivered accurately by our machines. But to make sure the burst of radiation hits the right area sometimes means more than a well-calibrated machine and accurate scans. In a contemporary radiotherapy, external beam radiotherapy treatment, the machine is rotating around a patient, delivering that dose, while the patient is lying there as still as they can be, with immobilisation equipment to help them stay still, some of which is fitted specifically for that patient, but some of it is like generic handholds and things. Like the traditional implanted materials we heard about earlier, sometimes this kind of equipment just isn't fit for purpose, which means the dose of radiation might not hit its mark, potentially harming patients. For example, to treat the lower leg, you need a treatment of the bone in your lower leg. The particular issue with the lower leg is if you can imagine for your CT imaging, your foot was pointed exactly up towards the ceiling. And when you go for your treatment, your foot could be rotated out or rotated in, turned out or turned in. And either of those positions, your leg, that tissue that we need to treat is going to be in a different place. We're not going to hit the target. And so a really simple, creative way of dealing with this, this, this was developed by one of our radiation therapists, was to just design a box, 3D printed box, that fits exactly around the patient's foot. So the patient's foot will be immobilised. And because it's 3D printing, because we have control over that material and that geometry, we can print it in a nice low density so it's not going to scatter, it's not going to affect the beam. It's just going to sit there out of the field and do its job, keep the patient still. And Dr Can says 3D printing helps her and her team in other ways too, like creating better lifelike models of generic or specific patients using the array of anatomically accurate printed materials we saw earlier. These models can help make sure each burst of radiation is hitting the right area and that the new machines or radiation techniques are working accurately. In the past, we might have used a comparatively simple patient model. So this is all very, very exciting. A head that contains tissue equivalent tissue, bone equivalent bone, brain equivalent brain, and, you know, all of the air gaps and things. And it is also contributed a lot to make sure new technologies are doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. And finally, she says 3D printing has also helped with more targeted radiation therapies, especially for cancers like those on the skin. This is through what are called boluses, 3D printed chunks that sit on top of a patient's skin, helping to focus radiation on a more localised area. The patient is being treated using a high-energy X-ray beam. And when that beam comes out of the machine, goes through the air, gets to the patient's tissue, gets to their skin, it will take 
several millimetres, like a centimetre and a half, for that dose to build up in that patient's skin so that you will not get your maximum dose until after a centimetre or so. If you want to treat cancer of the skin, so BCCs and SCCs, uh, bolus, it's a method of shifting that maximum dose from a centimetre below the patient's skin up to the surface of the patient's skin. If you're treating the skin cancer, it's exactly what you want. And Dr. Can tells me they've already made hundreds of these small, simple devices to help treat about 200 patients over the past couple of years. Mathilde Dessel collects me to continue our tour. She reiterates that having the Biofabrication Institute right here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital has helped speed up research and development of new techniques like those Dr. Tanya Can just mentioned by bringing doctors and researchers closer together with a focus on helping patients as soon as possible. Tomorrow's engineers and surgeons' careers will likely look vastly different to what they were a decade ago. We train surgeons to use 3D printers. We send engineers to observe surgical procedures. I'm very cautious of terms like future of health, but give me a glimpse of what's just around the corner. What do you see as the kind of next big priority areas for research at the Biofabrication Institute? I think one of the very promising and interesting avenues sits actually in the tissue engineering space. Tissue engineering approaches that are personalised to regenerate skin. And when it comes to regrowing skin, the next member of the institute I meet tells me this is already being used on some patients today. I'm Jason Brown. I'm the director of Queensland Adult Statewide Burn Service. We are in the research tissue lab. So look, in this lab, we look at different technologies to grow skin cells, mostly fibroblasts and keratinocytes. The keratinocytes being the waterproof layer on the outside of your skin, and they're often the first layer lost when you get burnt, and they're also the layer that keep you alive. Dr Brown tells me that in severe burns patients, those with more than 20 or 30% of the body's surface area burnt, treatment regimes have changed a lot over the past few decades. Nowadays, the first step is removing all the burnt tissue. He says this has been shown to help patients survive, but it also means huge parts of the body are suddenly open to the outside world and infections. So doctors then aim to seal up these wounds temporarily and take a small sample of the patient's remaining skin from a donor site to begin regrowing it. Part of that technology to enable that model to change has been the ability to temporarily seal your wounds with different technologies and that's often synthetic artificial skins and other things and also the ability to expand your donor site so if you've only got if you've got a 90 percent burn you've only got 10 percent of your body you can use to as a donor site to cover the burn so we have to expand that out to cover the other 90 percent so that's often multiple rounds and operations to get there and obviously there's a limit. That limit's been creeping on how big a burn you can survive. But some of the newer technologies, the limit now is not surviving the burn. It's being able to cover the wounds with your tissue quick enough before you succumb to an infection. And this is where the kind of edge of research is. We've been able to grow skin cells since the 1980s, but the tissue we get is a bit like mucus. It's pink mucus, it's not a skin. 
and it takes quite a while to grow it, anything from three to six weeks. Yes, we can expand it out many, many times and we can take a little credit card size and have 20 times that skin in six weeks, but it doesn't behave like your normal skin. So some of the research we're doing is how do we augment your skin that's spared to grow a more normal skin substitute to close your wounds as quick as we can, producing less scarring and reducing your risk of succumbing to infection in that period where you don't have your normal skin to protect you from the outside world. So that's some of the research we're doing here. So we have a almost identical lab adjacent to the burns unit, and that's our clinical lab where we grow skin and put it on patients. And we separate our research lab, which is up here at HBI, where we look at different techniques to grow the cells using new materials, different chemicals and different sort of receptor molecules to help promote skin and also produce a skin that's more normal. A big focus of his team's work is improving survival rates in these more extreme cases by experimenting with how skin tissue is grown and by using different types of artificial skins to temporarily seal up wounds. The other thing we use now, which is an Australian technology, which is a synthetic skin, which is actually made of polyurethane. And that polyurethane you grow into and you break it down over 18 months. And that polyurethane can act as your skin for a couple of months if we need to. And when you're ready to graft, you peel off a little bit at a time and you put your skin on. It's incredible. So that buys us several weeks. Now what that allows us to do is start growing their skin. And Dr Brown's team is also looking at ways to improve wound healing, aiming for less scarring once the patient's regenerated skin tissue is ready. So they've been using 3D imaging to better understand aspects like burn depth, ultimately helping to guide surgical planning. And they've also made use of 3D printing technology for things like custom pressure devices to help healing and prosthetics. He points out that Australia is quite advanced when it comes to this field, but there's still plenty of work to do to make sure people can survive burns with the highest quality of life possible afterwards. In Australia, most of the larger burn centres have a capability to grow cells. Fiona Wood at Perth has been doing the spray-on kind of suspension of cells. The Alfred in Melbourne are doing sheets of cells similar to what we're doing. It's trying to get it to work well is difficult because it's not an exact science growing new skin for people. Skin grafting is very common. We are very good at doing it. But when you start to push the limits where you don't have enough skin on the patient's spare to put on them, that's when it starts to become a little bit more tricky. But already these new processes they've developed are helping patients. Survival's not a a barrier now. We've had 90% burns survive, and they survive well. A lot of these people are back at work. There was a Bodhi from Manly Beach, Crispy Dave. I'm sure he's happy for me to mention his name. He's... He's back running his own boat up at Whitsundays. Sundays. You know, it was his boat that blew up and caused his burn, but now he's back doing what he loves. You wouldn't know he had a 90% burn and spent, you know, six months in hospital and about two years recovering. So these people get back to very functional lives. And echoing what the others told me, Dr Jason Brown says in a field like his, having researchers embedded within the hospital setting and working directly with those applying research means new technology will quickly find its way to patient care. 
saving and improving more lives sooner. Having direct contact with those researchers and saying, actually, you know, this is a problem I have, this is an idea I have, what are you doing? And they'll go, well, oh, actually, we had forgotten about that. We've got this idea. Do you think that might work? I go, well, let's find out. So you suddenly get this focused research on a clinical problem. The result of that is the outputs can be directly translated. The pathway to getting that innovation into a patient instead of 15 or 20 years can be measured in like, you know, a few years or five years. Carl Smith produced that report on the future of healthcare and 3D printing. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.